morning, Christ City. We're like a little, little smaller, cozy crowd today. I like it. It's so cold outside. I feel like I should make you all scooch into these two sections so we can all funnel together and keep warm. How are you doing? Yeah, yeah. Um, if I haven't met you, my name's Andrea. I am one of the pastors here at Christ City. And I just, again, we want to welcome you to our service this morning. Um, thank you for being here in person. Thank you for being on YouTube. Um, okay. So I have some good news and I have bad news. Um, I have good news and sad news. It's not bad news for us this morning, okay? I'll give you the sad news first. The sad news is that today is the last week of our Mark series for this year. Uh, I know, right? Oh my gosh, so sad. I've really enjoyed um, walking through the Gospel of Mark with you. I, I really enjoy when we do book series like this. I feel like there's just like this cohesion that we have together. I always learn a lot. Um, so I've really enjoyed doing it, uh, and I'm sad that we're going to close out this little fall chapter here. Um, but, so that's the sad news. But there are two pieces of good news. Are you ready? Yeah. Okay, thank oh. Christy's ready. Oh, that blessed me. There are two pieces of good news. Okay, so first, we're going to come back to the Gospel of Mark in the new year. Yeah. Yes. So we're going to finish Mark, like the third section of our series. We'll start in January after the new year, and we're going to go all the way up through Easter in the, in the Gospel of Mark and finish it out. So yay, that's great. And then second, as you've already heard, Advent starts next week. It's next week, Advent. Um, I love Advent. I'm so glad, honestly, like that we've had this time to be able to prepare in this way. Even like through the study of the Gospel of Mark, you know, we've all been, we've been exploring this question together of what does it mean to follow Jesus? Um, and I just am really excited to have the opportunity to celebrate and remember the birth of Jesus um, with you all over these next few weeks. So that's next week. Um, really excited about that. So we do have one more week in Mark, and it's now. Um, it's today. And so today, we're going to just jump right in. We've come to the end of chapter 10 in the Gospel of Mark, okay? We've come to this, like, last point of Mark's narrative before Jesus arrives in Jerusalem and, and when what's often called um, the passion story begins. So it's like the recounting of the plot to kill Jesus, his betrayal, his arrest, and then his death. This is where we've been headed this whole time. We have, we've known that. Um, so we've broken Mark into three sections, and as we've looked at this second section uh, this fall, we've been exploring what it means to follow Jesus, um, and more specifically, what it means to follow Jesus in the way of the cross, because we know that that's where he's headed, right? So our anchoring verse for uh, this part of, of the gospel has been Mark 8, 34. It's where Jesus says, if any wish to come after me, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. So we've been talking about discipleship or what it means to follow Jesus. So our text today is at the end of a section in Mark that is really specifically focused on discipleship, what it means to follow Jesus. So over uh, our study in Mark, we've talked several times about this thing called a Markin sandwich. Yes? I feel like I've talked a lot about that and like it's been mostly me. I just really like, <laughs> I really like the device, and I like the picture. I always picture like a great big sandwich, um, and that makes me happy inside. So a Markin sandwich quickly is a literary device. It's used by the author of Mark, um, where one story will start, and then it'll get interrupted by like a completely different story, and then 
the other story will finish. So it's like a sandwich. It's one story sandwiched in between another one. So it is a literary technique, but it has a very theological purpose in the Gospel of Mark. Mark uses it to make theological points. So like the middle of the sandwich is typically meant to bring like a very specific interpretive lens to both stories. Okay, so you might remember that when we started this series, um, we started with a sandwich, uh, which I preached back then too. Um, we talked about uh, John the Baptist's death, as you might recall. Um, that was back in September. So in that text, the narrative of how John the Baptist died is inserted into the middle of this narrative in which Jesus sends his disciples out on mission. And then you hear about John the Baptist, and then they come back, right? And when it's, it's meant to point to the sandwiching of these narratives is meant to point to the cost of discipleship, right? When we're on the way with Jesus, it won't always be easy. In fact, it will lead to death, death of something. And Mark uses this sandwich thing multiple times through the gospel. So today's text, okay, today's text, uh, I know it was kind of long. Thank you, Nikki, for reading it all. Um, I know it was a little bit of a, of a, a longer passage, but we're it's broken down sort of into three parts, which is how we're going to kind of look at it, right? So the first part is when Jesus is foretelling his death and resurrection. He's telling them what's about to happen, right? The second part of our text today is when the disciples argue over who will be the greatest, again, right? And then the third part of our text today is the healing of a man named Bartimaeus, who's blind. So we're going to spend most of our time with Bartimaeus today, um, because his story is actually one side, it's like one piece of bread of a very big Markin sandwich that we haven't hit on yet. And some, I mean, it's, a, it's very big. Some scholars don't put this like in the sandwich category, um, the official sandwich category. Um, I've seen it referred to as like bookends of a section of Mark, but I'm cool with a big old sandwich. I think that that's just greater. We have just more in the middle to be nourished by. So, the, so that's one side of a sandwich. The other side of this big sandwich that we're kind of looking at today is actually back two chapters before in Mark 8. So we're in Mark 10 today. And Mark 8, um, which we talked about a few weeks ago, um, Jesus and the disciples are in Bethsaida. It's a town about 80 miles north of Jerusalem. And some people bring a man, bring a man who is blind to Jesus um, for a physical cure. And Jesus, uh, as you might remember, he wipes saliva on the man's eyes once, and the man is partially cured. And he says, um, oh, I can see people walking around. They look like trees. Remember that a little bit? Jesus places his hands on the man again, and the text says that then his sight is restored, and he can see everything clearly. That's the first piece of bread of this big sandwich. Um, and then the second is our text today, which is the healing of Bartimaeus. And there's a lot in the middle. So the bread of this big sandwich is two narratives of Jesus enabling two people to see physically. That means everything that happens in between is what we're meant to see as like the meat of the sandwich. So Mark is using these two healings to frame the way in which the disciples, which all that action happens in the middle, consistently do not see. They, it's how they misunderstand who Jesus is really is what Jesus has come to do and then what following Jesus means. And the centerpiece of this sandwich is a struggle for understanding. It's a struggle to have like the right vision of who Jesus is, to recognize Jesus as he is, not as the disciples expected him to be or tried to like distort him into being. 
themselves. And honestly, the middle of this sandwich, which we've gone through again in the past couple weeks, is particularly frustrating to read, um, especially when you're looking at the bigger picture that Mark is trying to paint here. So Jesus keeps trying to tell the disciples what's going to happen and how it is, what his mission is about, and therefore what their mission is about, and they keep totally missing it. I mean, we can't blame them, but they keep totally missing it. So this actually happens in the meat of this sandwich three times, okay, between chapters 8 and 10. It's not that much time. You'll see this pattern emerge where uh, Jesus will announce his death and resurrection. Like, he'll say that this is what's going to happen. Then the disciples will have a big, big fail. And then Jesus has to explain something to them, like discipleship to them. There's this pattern. So first, Jesus explains us what's going to happen. The disciples are like, uh, we don't get it. And then they fail. And then Jesus is like, let me explain this to you. Okay? This happens three times. So let me, let's walk through each of these three. I have a chart for you, which is so great. It'll come up in a minute. So the first time that this pattern happens is in chapter 8. Okay? So Jesus says openly to the crowd of people who's around, who are around him and to his disciples that he's going to suffer. He's going to be rejected by the, by the religious leaders of the time, and he's going to be killed. But after three days, he's going to rise again. Okay? And then the text says, right after that, that Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Fail. Right? And then this is when Jesus says to the crowd and to his disciples, our anchor verse, if anybody wishes to come after me, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. We see this pattern. Okay? So the second time we see this pattern is in the next chapter, chapter 9. So as Jesus and the disciples are passing through Galilee, he tells them again that he's going to be betrayed, he's going to be killed, and then he's going to rise again after three days. And they continue on. They're walking along, and Jesus asks them, the disciples, hey, what were you arguing about while we were walking on the way? And the text says that the disciples were silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Fail. Two. And that's when Jesus tells them that whoever wants to be first must be last of all and servant of all. Um, as a side note, Annabelle Schultz preached the crap out of this passage on Youth Sunday. Um, if you'd like to go back and take a listen to that, I would encourage you to do that. But again, we see this pattern. Jesus predicts his death. The disciples don't get it. And then Jesus is teaching them again about what discipleship is. So that's two the third time that this happens in the sandwich brings us to our text today. So we're in chapter 10. The crowd, the disciples, and Jesus, they're all on the road to Jerusalem. Jesus takes the 12 disciples aside and says to them for a third time, Look, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. Then they'll hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit upon him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise again. So this is, remember, our text is in three parts. This is the first part of our text today. Do you remember the second part that's coming? Spoiler alert, it's the fail. <laughs> right after Jesus says this, James and John, two of the disciples, come to Jesus with a request. Appoint us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. 
And then the text says that when the other ten disciples heard this, they were mad at James and John for asking because they were all still trying to vie for power and position. Fail. Fail, fail, fail. And then again, for the third time, Jesus explains to them that the power they see wielded in the world is not the power that the kingdom operates in. This is verse 42. You know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their rulers lord it over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. Instead, whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. So there's this frustrating pattern that we see three times. This is the meat of this big sandwich, okay? It's the disciples not being able to figuratively see who Jesus is or understand what he's trying to teach them about following him. And this is the bulk of what we looked at in the second part of Mark, right? It's been what we're asking ourselves uh, about what it means to follow Jesus. How have we misunderstood what it means to follow Jesus? How are we still holding on to our own way of understanding who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do and what it means for us to follow him instead of allowing Jesus to give us new insight? Does walking with Jesus down the way... Does the kingdom look different than we think? These are the questions that we've been asking, that, um, that these fails that we see also this pattern has been prompting us to ask. So this brings us to the last narrative of our section today, which again is the second piece of bread in the big sandwich that we've just taken apart. And the last piece is the story of Jesus' encounter with a man named Bartimaeus. So I want us to read the text together one more time because we're going to look at this narrative a little bit uh, more closely. This is verse 46. They came to Jericho. As he and his disciples and a large crowd were leaving Jericho, Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, a blind beggar, was sitting by the roadside. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many sternly ordered him to be quiet, but he, stood, but he cried out even more loudly, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stood still and said, Call him here. And they called to the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he's calling you. So throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And then Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? The blind man said to him, my teacher, let me see again. And Jesus said to him, go, your faith has made you well. Immediately he regained his sight and followed Jesus on the way. So remember, this, is, this narrative, this story is the end of this sandwich. This is the end of an intentional section of Mark where he's talking about discipleship or what it means to follow Jesus, okay? So there's so much for us to dig into. And as we begin, just to kind of look at this story, that the first thing that I want to do, I, I want to name and address um, just outright the way that the church has historically viewed and interpretive narratives of healing with a very ableist lens. Um, we talked about this a little bit earlier in the year in our first uh, section of Mark when we went through the narrative of Jesus healing a man who was paralyzed. Um, 
But a lot of the time, uh, historically, we have interpreted disability in the Bible as, I think at best, like a problem in and of itself. And then we've interpreted disability, I think at worst, as a physical consequence of sin or the ultimate sign of like non-wholeness. I think uh, it's, it's, I'm grateful, I think, that we're, we're privileged to be here at a time in history when theologian, theologians with disabilities are becoming more prominent, um, even as they're still marginalized and silenced by much of the church. Uh, it's right to recognize here that listening to people who are often marginalized by the church, like people with disabilities, and I'm certainly guilty of this, is essential, it's necessary when, when, it, when it comes to developing theology that actually seeks to understand more of God. And we say this about all sorts of different perspectives, not just about people with disabilities, we say it, um, people who uh, have different experiences being different genders, being different races. There's, there is um, just a, um, a quality of experience that we get when we're doing theology together as a community. One of the limitations of being human is having a limited perspective. It's just what we have. But one of the gifts of community is the ability to recognize other perspectives through other people. So when our thinking and theological development comes only from one dominant perspective, then both our thinking and our theological development are most certainly incomplete, right? We're missing something. So for us today, by recognizing the dominant ableist lens in the way that we read scripture, the way that we have developed theology, what, what we're doing is we're, we're trying to, we're attempting to and wanting to give voice to marginalized voices, which we recognize as important and essential, and we're opening ourselves up to something else. There's something for us to learn here. Um, as a side note, if you're interested in more resources on disability theology, I um, would love to offer you some of those via email. Um, it's been very challenging um, and such a blessing to, um, to dive into that a little bit. So this has certainly been the case with Bartimaeus' story. This is one of the more popular stories, I think, in Mark. Like, he's known as Blind Bartimaeus. That's who he is. Like, his, his um, disability has become literally part of his identity and how we remember him. Um, Historically, we've, I think, immediately equated physical blindness with spiritual blindness in this story. But when that happens without recognizing that, again, we have this dominant, the dominant view is an ableist view that causes us to make a lot of assumptions. And then what happens is we end up reducing people just to their abilities, and that's actually very dehumanizing. Um, and when we're studying the Bible, we're studying scripture, we're in community together, that's the, that's the way we're not trying to go. We're not trying to go towards dehumanization. We're going the other way. And when that happens, when we're dehumanizing people, when we're reducing them just to like one thing about them, and in this case, their ability or disability, we are then creating and making incomplete and oftentimes harmful theologies from our own reduced misunderstanding. The issue here isn't so much that Jesus heals, because Jesus does heal, it's that our own understanding of healing maybe is perhaps too small, okay? So I was reading about this a little bit this week, and I read an article um, by Reverend Kyle Stevenson. He's an ordained Baptist minister. Um, he preaches and writes from a multiple intersection perspective, including being a person with cerebral palsy. 
And Reverend Stevenson, he writes about the difference between healing and cure. So really specifically and particularly from a contemporary US perspective, that's where we are. So he's making this distinction between healing and cure. And he's saying that healing, healing doesn't always imply a cure. Healing can happen amid having a disability. I think in our context, we tend to shrink the concept of healing down to only cure, right? We assume cure is the only way to wholeness. We tend to look at it from a very medical point of view, which is only one part of a more holistic idea of thriving. I'm not saying that medical cures aren't important or miraculous even, but when we shrink it down to just making healing about medical cure, we've reduced it down to something smaller than it is. So Reverend Stevenson writes that a lot of the time, the miraculous medical solution to illness or disability is the one that's always applied to the story. That's how disability is usually regarded. Typically, a hermeneutic or an interpretation of cure is used instead of healing when healing texts are preached. So a first century understanding of disability was one that made disability like a problem. It was an obstacle to overcome. But we often forget that there were other structural barriers at play for people with illness and for people with disabilities in Jesus's context. Both an illness or a disability had major implications on a person's social status, on their inclusion in society, on their ability to have agency in society, to be part of a household, to make a living, to worship in the temple with other people. An illness or a disability affected all of these things. So when Jesus heals, when we see Jesus heal in the Gospels, it's much bigger than just providing a medical cure. In the New Testament, there are three Greek words that get translated into English as healing. So we're going to do a little Greek learning. Are you all with me? I'm probably going to pronounce it wrong, but that's okay. We're just going to be here and we're ready to learn. Yeah? Okay. There are three Greek words that get translated into English as healing, or in our text, the way that it's translated in our text is made well. Your faith has made you well. Um, also, in some other interpretations, it's, it's said your faith has healed you. Okay, so the first one is thetapuo. This one's used 48 times in the New Testament, and its meaning um, refers to curing, like relieving of a disease. Okay, so that's one of them, thetapuo. The second one is iaomai. This one appears 32 times in the New Testament, and it refers to like one specific way of healing. Um, it refers to a miraculous, like instant healing. That's when this one's used. The last one is sozo. Sozo. This is the one that is used most often in the New Testament. And this is the word that's specifically used in our text today to refer to what happens to Bartimaeus. So the definition of sozo is a little bit different. It's a bit more comprehensive. It points to being or making someone whole. 
It's used 120 times in the New Testament. And besides being translated as heal, sometimes it's translated as heal, sozo is also translated into English as save, deliver, and restore. It's a way bigger concept than just cure. So in our text, when Jesus says to Bartimaeus, your faith has made you well, or your faith has healed you, the healing being referred to here is not limited to the restoration of his sight, but to something much more holistic. This sozo is the same root word that is used in last week's text when Jesus says, when Jesus goes, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples are like, what? Like they're astounded. They're like, what does this mean? And they ask one another, then who can be saved? Who can be sozo? Who can be saved? Sozo is also the same root word used in Mark 8 in the passage that our anchor verse is in when Jesus says, if anyone wants to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save sozo, their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. Sozo. So Bartimaeus is asking to see there's, there's so much more that's going on here. There's so much more for us to glean from this text and from his request. So in this big sandwich that, we've talked, that we're talking about today, the author of Mark is using the physical blindness of two men, including Bartimaeus on this side, to point out the spiritual blindness of the disciples. We, though, have become, I think, so focused on Bartimaeus' condition that it's been very easy to miss his disposition. And maybe that's part of the point. So at the end of this section of Mark, again, the end of this big sandwich and this big section about discipleship, what it means to follow Jesus, Bartimaeus is actually the one that is held up as a model disciple. We've had these like, fail, disciple, the disciples are like, fail, 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 right? All the way through. And then at the very end of this, we get this one last story. This is the last healing that will happen in Mark of Bartimaeus. And he is the one that's held up as a model disciple where the disciples continue to get it wrong and lack insight. Bartimaeus is the one who grasps who Jesus is. He's the one whose faith leads to wholeness whose faith leads to sozo, right? So even before Bartimaeus is cured, cured, he is the one who recognizes his need. He is the one who calls out to Jesus. Bartimaeus is the one who ignores all the other voices in the text. There are people who are trying to shush him, the ones that are trying to drown out his calls for help, the voices that are telling him to be quiet, to stop making such a ruckus, to stick by the wayside, which is where he was. He was on the side of the road. Even before Bartimaeus' sight is restored, he is the one in verse 49 who is called by Jesus. And he is the one that the text says throws off his cloak. His cloak was probably, possibly, only his only belonging as a beggar on the side of the road. So it, it would be like a piece that provides warmth. It would be likely what he would use to like throw in front of him to collect money as he begged on the street. 
his, his cloak, it was a garment that in his context was a sign of status and a symbol of power. He throws it off when Jesus calls him. It, the text says he springs up and goes immediately to Jesus. It's Bartimaeus that does this. Even before he is able to physically see again, Bartimaeus is the one who is shown to have insight I don't know if you noticed this, but Jesus asks a question two times in our text today. He asks the question, what is it that you want me to do for you? He first asked it to James and John in like the second part of our text. And then he asks the same exact word for word question to Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus is the one who demonstrates faith by asking for healing, by asking for wholeness when the disciples literally just verses before when asked the identical question are the ones who are asking for power and status bartimaeus is the one who is commended by jesus your faith has made you well your faith has healed you so so and then bartimaeus is the one who the text says immediately gets up and follows Jesus on the way to Jerusalem. Friends, we follow, we want to follow the example of Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus here is held up for us as a model of what it looks like to follow Jesus. When the disciples have continually gotten it wrong, we are at least given one relief of someone who is held up um, and commended by Jesus that your faith has made you well, and he gets up and follows him on the way. We follow the example of Bartimaeus when we ask for the insight to see Jesus as he is and to follow Jesus on the way. And as we have journeyed together through this part of Mark's gospel, this is consistently what we've come back to, right? What does it look like to follow Jesus? So we're about to enter this liturgical season of Advent. Again, super excited. Um, but Advent is the time of year when we practice waiting and we practice, practice expectancy. It's a time when we look for Jesus. When we settle our, our souls, we posture ourselves in such a way where we can be expectant and look for Jesus because we know that Jesus is coming, right? My hope for us in Advent is that we will be met by the person of Jesus. In, the, um, in our text today, um, there's two groups of people that are in the text uh, when Bartimaeus starts calling out to Jesus and he's saying, son of David, like have mercy on me. First, there's this part of the crowd is trying to literally shush him. And they're being like, hey, be quiet. You're, this is too much. You need to know your place. Stay on the side of the road. There's also, though, another instance of another group of people in the crowd. So Jesus hears Bartimaeus calling out, and he says, I don't know if he's, maybe he's far away or like whatever it is, it's a big crowd of people, but he, it, the text says he tells them, the crowd, to tell him to come to me, come to me. And Bartimaeus, what Bartimaeus hears is actually from the people. He hears the people exclaim to him, hey, take heart, take courage, get up. Jesus is calling you. Jesus is calling you. 
friends, I know that we've, we've gone through a lot in this series of Mark. I think we've covered so much. Um, I feel like my brain has been really stuffed, full of learning new things, so many sandwiches. Our souls have been fed by the Mark and sandwiches. Our brains have been fed. Um, and, and that's all been wonderful, and I truly have enjoyed it um, and feel so privileged to have been able to be a part of it with you. And at the end of it, this is where we are, we're at the end of this section, the question still comes down to what does it look like to follow Jesus? Are we looking for Jesus? Are we willing to take off our cloak, our, our statuses of, of um, our symbols of status and power in order to get up and get off the wayside and get onto the way and follow Jesus where Jesus is going? It's one of the most elementary things I feel like about Christian faith and also the hardest. Lisa said, I think uh, a few weeks ago, she said, following Jesus is really simple, but it is not easy. <laughs> it's not. We keep coming back to that. And that's what I offer to you this morning, the questions that we continue to, um, to bounce around, um, the questions that we're taking with us as we walk again into Advent, a season where we are looking for Jesus, where we're asking Jesus to come, come, Lord Jesus. Um, show us who you are, show us what it, what it means to follow you. Um, so as we close out, I think just this, this uh, section of Mark, um, I just want you to hear these words again, uh, these words from the crowd that he, that, uh, that called out to Bartimaeus, because I echo them this morning. Um, friends, take courage, take heart, get up, because Jesus is calling you. And let's continue to push into following him. Would you pray with me? God, this is what we ask of you this morning. It's a small question and a big question. What does it look like to follow you? What does it mean that that's what you're inviting us to do? God, we confess the ways that we have um, made you in our own image, that we have um, just taken the liberties to assume what it means to follow you and not, um, and not actually had a moment to reflect on what it means to follow Jesus along the way. God, I thank you for these, these weeks that we've been able to be together and study uh, the Bible. Um, I thank you, God, for uh, the way that your spirit has led us and guided us. We ask you, God, to continue. We pray, God, that as we enter this season of celebrating your son's birth, um, that what would grow in us is an expectancy, God, and what would grow in us is a true vision of, of who you are through Jesus. We offer these things to you, and we ask them in Jesus' name. Amen.